Good morning. We are in uh, Matthew chapter 2. If you have uh, a Bible, you can flip open to Matthew chapter 2. Um, if you don't, there's some Bibles underneath you there. They're kind of a green, yellow looking Bible. Um, and it's in that Bible, it's the very first book. Uh, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. We're, we're really studying through the book of Matthew for uh, a while. So <laughs> we're in chapter 2. I invite you to go ahead and turn there. Um, I'm going to pray. And then we'll go ahead and jump into Matthew 2, starting at verse 1 through 12. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this time where we can um, study your word. Lord, I pray that you would help me um, speak with clarity. God, I pray that um, all, the, all the things that I say will be true and helpful. If there's, if there's things that I've got planned to say that wouldn't be uh, helpful or, or useful for our time here, that you would keep me from saying those things and um, I just pray for myself, God, that you would shape my heart to be receptive to your word and that I would conform my life around it and that um, whatever you show me today and whatever you show all of us today, that we would want to um, be obedient to the things that are in this text. We thank you for your word and the power and strength that comes with it. Be with us now as we study. And I do pray, God, that um, I do pray that we would leave here differently than what we came. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, if you've been with us, we've been studying through the book of Matthew. I just want to kind of catch you up if you're not exactly familiar with, with what's going on. Um, in chapter one, we've kind of gone through that. We did chapter one over the course of about four weeks. Um, and what we've seen here is this. Um, there's a guy named Matthew um, he was a disciple of Jesus, and after Jesus died, he wrote a book um, called the Gospel of Matthew. And what his desire is, um, the, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and what Matthew's desire is, as he's writing, he's writing to a Jewish audience. So he's wanting the people that were um, Jewish, or really of the people of God historically, to be able to see that this, this man named Jesus was the Messiah, was the anointed one, was the one that in the Old Testament, whenever they're talking about um, this coming Messiah, that this man, Jesus, was that actual person. And so Matthew has a very specific aim that he's writing to those who were Jewish in the first century, wanting them to see and know that this person, Jesus, was the one that the Old Testament scriptures were prophesying about or talking about or saying that was going to come and that Jesus is the Messiah. And so we see as we go through the genealogy, when it says the book of the genealogy, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's picking these these big prominent historical figures um, in Israel, David, Abraham, wanting them to see, okay, if we're connecting back, Abraham's the father of all Israel. David's the king. We know, I mean, he is the king of, of Israel. There were more, but there was never one greater. And he's Matthew's wanting all the people of Israel to see as he's right, as taking them through these three sets of 14 generations that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the point. That's really the point of the book. And so that's the point of the first chapter. And so as we go in here, um, he goes into the second part there of uh, chapter one, kind of the story, Matthew's rendition, not necessarily like Luke, but Matthew's rendition of the birthplace and the birth of Jesus. Now, it's not like Luke's where there's lots of detail about the story, but it's more just about the fact that we kind of centered in last time we were here um, on Christmas Eve, we centered in on verse 21, where it says she will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus or Yeshua or the Lord saves for he will save his people from their sins. So that was that was really one of the main things that that Matthew wanted us to see is that Jesus Christ is the savior of those who will put their faith in him. He will save his people from their sins. And then we we come now to chapter two. Um, we come now to chapter two, where this is the the visit of the Magi or the, what we know as the wise men. Or you maybe you heard the little song, we three kings of Orion are. And really, we don't know that there were three and we don't really know that they were kings. So um, the song's not necessarily historically correct at all. Um, but so we've come now to the time here where we have chapter two, verses one through twelve. And we have the story um, of these Magi, these wise men that are coming to visit now. At my house, Christy and I have a little, we have a little uh, 
competition with one another, a little, a little running competition um, that we desire uh, with our children. We desire, and we call it being the hero. We desire to get to be the hero. In other words, if there's good news to give, that we want to be the one to give the good news. We don't ever want to be the one that has to bring the bad news. You know, it's brush your teeth and go to bed, eat your vegetables. We like to be the one that's the good news. Um, we love to be the hero. And most, most likely, usually, I get to be the hero. Um, and Christy has to be the disciplinarian because she's with them the whole day. But last week when we canceled on Saturday night, Christy chose that she wanted to be the hero. Um, and it was the kids had been in bed for a couple hours, but of course weren't asleep because it was Christmas night still. Um, and she goes up there and the snow's coming down. It's starting to really come down. So um, they go to bed at about 7, 9 p.m. She goes up and gets them out of bed, brings them downstairs and, and takes them outside and lets them see the snow. And they're all excited. And she go, they go back upstairs and I'm like, Christy, she comes back down. I said, like, you just wanted to be the hero, right? And she goes, yeah, I just wanted to be the hero. Um, and so we, ha- we kind of have this running thing that being the hero kind of builds our, builds our ego. It makes us feel good. Um, and all of us, in some sense, love to get to be the hero. We all do. But it, all of us, if we're honest, if we're, if we're really honest, we all have this in us. We all love to get to be the hero of things. And if, as Christians, if we're not careful, the tendency um, to get to be the hero, to place ourselves above Christ, to place ourselves above the things that we should be due, is so ingrained in us, if we're not careful, that we end up living our life that way. Um, and so as Christians, we need to seek after that, that desire within us to get to be the hero of things. Because in the end, the truth is, it's not about you at all. It's not about me at all. Um, this life that we have that's been given to us, given to us by God, <clears throat> if we're a follower of him, is not about us. So... As we're looking here at at, uh, at Matthew two, one of the things I want us to kind of have, kind of echoing in our minds and our as we're studying, um, one of the things I think's true is it's not about you. It's not about me, and that's one of the points here. Now, the main the main point of the text as we're going to look through here again, as I've said, is Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. Um, it's all about the King. It's all about Him. And in Second Samuel, there's a promise, which I've already read. I'm just going to read to you one more time. There's a promise made to David um, in Second Samuel, you know, years before Jesus was born. God made a promise to, to, to David, the king. And he said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall um, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom I shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is a promise made to David fulfilled in Jesus that Jesus is going to establish his kingdom forever. And so David knows this. All the people of Israel know this. And so what I want us to see as we're going into this, that it's not about us, that it's about Christ. So what we're going to do is just kind of go through the go through the verses, you know, verse by verse and just kind of study through. And I'm going to start bringing out some stuff at the very end when we get to the end. So let's go ahead and look at it. It says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, it probably says wise men, if you're in the ESV, the, uh, the term was magi, uh, the term that is magi, and they came from the east um, to Jerusalem. So, uh, if you can picture, if you know the map at all, like, here's, here's Jerusalem, and they came from the east, probably were Persians, we don't really know, but they probably were Persians, um, Really, these wise men, wise men were studiers of astrology. Um, we're going to see later on that it's going to be a star that brought them. So God used things that they were familiar with um, through general revelation, the way he, he um, reveals himself. Um, and even we'll see later on that special revelation is used by the scriptures whenever they quote Micah 5. Uh, but he's using a star to bring them. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Um, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So we see two cities named there in verse 1. So if this is Jerusalem, wise men are coming over to Jerusalem. About six miles south is this little tiny town called Bethlehem. It's kind of like Charlotte, Fort Mill. You know, you get this massive city, Charlotte, and then underneath it's this t- little tiny town, Fort Mill. Just kind of think of it that way. You have Jerusalem, and six miles south is this tiny town, Bethlehem. Um, Bethlehem's small. There wasn't really anything that you're going to think is... Significant coming from Bethlehem, but we see from the scriptures that the King Jesus is going to be born there. Um, And it says, wise men from the east came, saying, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? 
Um, now, this is interesting to us because we see in verse one, it says Herod in the days of Herod, the king. So Herod's the king. And we know that Herod's a bit crazy, um, a bit obsessive and likes to be king and doesn't want anybody messing with that. And we're going to see later on um, just how crazy he is. But <clears throat> Herod's the king. And then these wise men come and they're saying and it doesn't necessarily tell us who they address this to. But they're saying so we're assuming it's in the presence of at least Herod. Um, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. Now, um, Herod is saying to himself, I'm the king of the Jews. What are you talking about? So all of a sudden, Herod's going to start saying, all right, wait, there's somebody that's supposed to be taking my place. I don't want anybody taking my place. Somebody's going to. And so we can see Herod's going to get upset about this. And it says, for we saw his star when it rose. And amazing. We have come to worship him. We have come to worship him. So we have Magi coming to worship someone who has been born, who's been told king of the Jews. Now, what we know about the Magi is this. Um, We don't know a lot. We don't know that they were kings. We don't know that there were three. We do know that they brought three gifts. And so more than likely, that's where tradition says that there were three of them. Could have been much more than that. And we know that they brought gifts. Um, But the point is not to necessarily know all those kind of details, but the fact that wise men were coming to find him. Now, we can take that and it's been taken and, and uh, kind of make a little bumper sticker out of it. You know, wise men still seek him. And you've probably seen that somewhere. I don't know that that's why Matthew wrote this. I don't think Matthew wrote it. So his, you know, wise men still seek him would be made on bumper stickers later. But there is some truth in that, that um, if we're truly wise, then we would still seek him. But what could we have in common with these guys? What, what are something, some things that we can have in common with these magi? We know that they came on a long journey. Um, more than likely, the baby here is around two years old. Jesus is around two. Um, I know in most of our nativity scenes, we have the wise men at the nativity scene. You know, when baby Jesus is in the manger, probably a cave. And there they are with their gifts. But more than likely, uh, we're going to see here that he's probably closer to two. In between uh, six months and two, but probably closer to two years old. Um, and so this was significantly after the birth of Jesus. Um, but what we know is that these men were um, coming a long way to seek a king in whom they necessarily didn't know very much about. They were probably of noble birth. They were very important men. They were persons of influence. They were wise. They were pretty much a big deal um, from where they were coming from. Um, but what's, what's something that we can find ourselves in common They seem to be so unlike us. They seem to be important figures coming to worship a king. Um, They have gifts to offer. They they have different things about them that they're persons of influence. They're persons of nobility. They have wisdom. And I'm just looking at that. I'm like, well, there's nothing in common with me about that. Um, And maybe we're all kind of thinking, what do I have in common with them? Their quest that they had to seek Christ was very serious. And their questions they had were earnest. And their desire to worship this king was very, very sincere. So what is it that we can have in common with them? Well, I'm thinking that if we kind of take a step back and think, all right, they came to seek a savior. They came to seek a savior to worship. You might not have anything in common with them, but we do have that in common. We are here this morning to seek a savior to worship. So Could this be now? This is all new beginnings. We're in a brand new decade and all kind of things are happening. Yesterday was one, 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 one or whatever it was. Um, Could this finally be the year like for for you? I know that you 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 make maybe in your mind or resolutions every single year. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to finally quit drinking. I already broke one of my resolutions. I'm going to stop drinking uh, soft drinks. I already broke that one. But I think like spiritually, we also kind of make some resolutions like this is the year where I'm finally going to start live for Christ, the way I've always dreamed and the way I've always prayed about. Starting this year, it's going to be the year that I'm going to do it. This year, I'm not going to live in realms of potential anymore about how I can start serving Jesus. I'm not going to, you know, <clears throat> have all this potential of how I can be and how I can live. But instead, 
I'm going to make the journey like the wise men and start really being used by Christ this year. Like I've decided, I've resolved in my mind that that's what's going to be the mark of 2011 for me. Maybe you can resolve that you want to bring your gifts like them, lay them down at the king's feet and just say, these, this is who I am. This is what I have. Just take me and use me the way you want to this year, Lord. We all start making these resolutions, especially in the beginning. And I think we all make these not just physical, kind of mental, I want to lose weight and get more in shape and blah, 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 but also spiritual resolutions. Could this be the year that every year that you come to this time and you pray for these things to happen and by February it's all gone? Could this be the year that you finally prayed for and today is the day that it finally begins? There is something that we have in common with these guys. And the fact is that we've come to see a king just like him. He is their savior and he is our savior. Romans 10, 8 says the word is near to you. It's in your mouth like the the word is near to us. We have it close to us. And so if we would kind of pause and say, "Okay, I'm considering. Year in, year out at this time where I come and things are happening and I'm always making plans and I'm always doing these things I want to do. And by February, it's gone. Maybe we can all kind of say. I don't want to resolve things anymore and kind of lose interest or they fall away. I want this year to be the year that I've been praying for my entire life in regard to how I seek Jesus and how I serve Christ and how I actually will see salvation. I I don't want to just pray that, Lord, let me see some people get saved in my life this year. I want to actually see some people get saved. So it doesn't matter if we're people of noble birth, if we're people of influence or a wise like them, um, he's going to use every single one of us and he's willing to use every single one of us this year. Praise God that he is willing to use people like us. That's the whole point of we're looking at the genealogy. Uh, he is using the most unforeseen people to accomplish his purposes and circumstances. And he will and wants to and desires to use you. He will. I mean, just look at the disciples, the most you know, unthought of people that would be the 12 people to change the world. And we're all like them. And he can use you to do amazing things this year. So here they come from the east. Now, the east um, is significant because it's, it's distant. And it tells us now before we saw the star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Now, this idea of worshiping him is not meaning that they have um, within them this perfectly formed Christology and a a complete understanding of who how Christ is 100% God and 100% man and they're ready to worship him with absolute 100% knowledge of who Christ is. They, They don't have that. But, praise God, we can. We can have to some degrees that. And so they're willing to come and worship someone that they don't even fully understand who's only two years old. We're standing 2,000 years later and have a lot more understanding of who this guy is. And we can worship him much more fully than even they did. And they sought after him and they they spent what was probably a two years journey going through the desert to finally see this Christ child to come worship him. Now, um, verse three, it says, when Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why was he troubled? Why was Herod troubled? Because he believed that this king was going to take over the kingdom and destroy his livelihood. Um. He believes that this ba- this baby is going to eventually take her. And we know that that's the truth. We know that's the truth. Um, and verse four, an assembling, but just not the way we would always think. Um, and then it says, so Herod's troubled. He's nervous. And look what he does. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of, of the people, he inquired of them where the baby was to be born. Now, this is fascinating. We, we can skip over this detail and maybe miss out on something. But this is fascinating and truly indicting of America. Um, and here's what I mean. Herod assembles the chief priests and scribes. These are the Pharisees at the time. Okay. Herod has no idea. He doesn't know the scriptures. He's like, all right, I'm hearing that there's supposed to be a, a king coming. I don't know the scriptures. Chief priests and scribes, you know the scriptures. What's the deal? So he assembles all the chief priests and the scribes and the people and inquire to them, where's this Christ supposed to be born? What's going on? You're supposed to be the ones that know. And they are. They are the guys that are absolutely filled with knowledge. They know all the scriptures and they know the prophecies and they know about this baby that's coming. And they're going to answer absolutely perfectly. They know the answer. Look what happens this. 
They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written. So they know Bethlehem is where this baby is supposed to be born. And then they even reach back to the scriptures over to Micah 5, 2, and they quote the scriptures. They say, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers. So Bethlehem, you're little, but that doesn't mean you're insignificant. That doesn't mean nothing's going to come from you. You may be seeming least among the rulers, for, but you're not, for from you shall come a ruler. For you, from you, Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. A prophecy talking about Jesus to come. The significantly interesting part is this. <laughs> We're going to see in the story that these wise men are going to go down to Bethlehem to seek after Christ. But these Pharisees and scribes don't go. They know that in Bethlehem, they, they just quoted the scriptures to Herod. We know they're filled with knowledge and understanding of how the things work, but they are off the radar screen when their lives are supposed to be looking for him. Is that not America? Is that not us? We are so filled with so much available podcasts and knowledge and Bibles and so many different Bibles to fit whatever niche you are. We're so filled with knowledge. We just want to soak up the knowledge. But I wonder if we're just like them. Yeah, it's over there, but I'm going to stay here. We need to kind of take our mindset out. I'm not saying filling ourselves with knowledge is bad, but perhaps, perhaps we should take the knowledge we're learning and, and take this instance and say, well, we're not supposed to just have this knowledge for knowledge's sake, but we're supposed to go to Bethlehem and see him. I mean, it's been prophesied for years and years and years that this that this Messiah is coming. They know they said, oh, yeah, it's supposed to be in Bethlehem. And the Magi go and they sit there. <laughs> they weren't looking. They knew the information, but they weren't looking. I wonder if we know the information, but we're not necessarily looking. We're just podcasting it out or knowing the scriptures or reading our Bible and, and knowing the information, but we're not seeking Jesus in our life. I don't know what we're seeking. Information. So it says that the chief priests and scribes of the people inquired of them whether Christ was to be born, and they told him that it's in Micah. Now, um, we just need to kind of understand what's going on whenever Matthew quotes Old Testament scriptures. There's, there's a couple principles I want to ca- kind of let you see. Um, last week, whenever we, we met, well, really it was Friday, but <clears throat> last week when we met, I didn't really have enough time. I had to preach a 17-minute sermon. But um, we see that also in verse 22, Matthew quotes a prophet. You can see in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, and he's, and he, and he's quoting Isaiah, Isaiah seven fourteen right there. Behold, the virgin um, shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And then right here in 5, they, this took, um, they told him in Bethlehem of, Judea for, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Um, you can see uh, again in 2, 17 and 18. Then what was fulfilled but spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So he names his name this time. We see it over again in 2.23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets. Might be fulfilled. He should be called a Nazarene. So sometimes he names prophets, sometimes he doesn't. What I want to do is just kind of set a stage for us. Because Matthew is writing to Jewish uh, people. And he's going to quote the Old Testament. I mean, he... The, the people he's writing to know the Old Testament scriptures. So he's going to use that and point them back to the scriptures to help them see that is talking about Jesus because Jesus is the Messiah. So before we start this major study of Matthew, I want to give you some principles to understanding um, when Matthew quotes Old Testament scriptures, what are some things we need to have in our mind? First is this. Um, Matthew is completely free to just say um, the prophet. And not have to say the prophet's name. And that's fine. It doesn't, if he wants to just say, uh, the prophet said this, and he doesn't say, um, and here Micah said it, he's perfectly fine to do that. The second thing is, um, it doesn't have to be a word for word quote. Um, it doesn't have to be like exactly for, for the quote to be like valid. Like Matthew is free because he is writing inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to when he looks at Micah, 
or he looks at Isaiah, it doesn't have to be, and sometimes it is, it doesn't have to be a word-for-word quote. Let, let me go ahead and put that up and let you see. Um, this is Matthew 2, 6. It should be up there. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Here's Micah 5, 2, the verse he's quoting. And it's not exactly the same, but somewhat. Um, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are, li- who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for <clears throat> you shall come forth for me, for you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old of ancient days. So he doesn't say shepherd my people Israel there. Um, but we do see if you, if you flip over in Micah 5, 4, he talks about shepherding people, but he doesn't say shepherd my people Israel. And so um, it doesn't have to be a word for word quote whenever Matthew points over. And here's the last thing that I want you to remember, and I kind of talked about it just a second. We must remember, Matthew himself is writing Scripture. He's quoting Scripture, but he is writing Scripture. So since he is writing Scripture, being carried by the Holy Spirit, he retains the right as an inspired writer that as he cites Old Testament Scriptures, he can also interpret these Old Testament Scriptures and explain those Old Testament Scriptures in the light of Christ. So... Whenever he says he will shepherd my people Israel, and as we're seeing later on, he he will sometimes take those things and it won't be a word for word quote. And he'll actually even explain or expound or take that Old Testament and say in light of Jesus, in light of the Messiah Christ, this is what that verse really means. And we'll see that. So that's that's the way they, they write as they write. And it's fine for them to do that. It's it's absolutely within the parameters of inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture and all these things. All right, let's jump off that and come back. <clears throat> to the story. So the, the, the chief priests and scribes grab Micah 5 and they say, Herod, um, it's in Bethlehem, but they don't go. Then Herod summoned the wise men. So this is a second meeting between Herod and the wise men. And this is a private meeting. Um, we, don't have, we don't have the wise men or, or uh, big scores of people there. It's just Herod. And he summons, <coughs> excuse me, he summons the, the magi secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Now, it's interesting the way Matthew tells us, and I think that's probably the way Herod asked it. He goes, hey, you know, astrologers, you, you neat magi guys, you're so interested in the stars. I'm just curious, man, when did you see this star? To talk about the star with them. But all he wants, all he wants is to, to know from them how long ago was it when you saw the star? Because however long ago it was when you saw this star... That's the day the baby was born. And when I know when, when the baby was born, I know how old the baby's supposed to be right now. And then I'm ready to go find that little baby. So he, he, he's, he is conniving for sure. And not a, not a good guy. And so we see here and it says, uh, so he ascertained what time the star had appeared because all he wanted to know was the age of the child. Um, and then he said, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, Bring me word that I, too, may come and worship him. I mean, just a flat out lie. Herod has no interest in worshiping. As a matter of fact, we can see over in 2, uh, sixteen what Herod's real thoughts are. Uh, basically, the Magi don't come back to him, but he says, And when, then Herod, when he saw that the, that had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that it was ascertained from the wise men. So all he wants to do is kill him. I mean, and that's why we think the baby was probably around two years old. This is probably why we think it's around two years after the birth, because he, he's looking to kill babies now um, that are two years and, and younger. And so that's why we think Jesus was probably two years old here um, and not a baby in the manger. And we also see some more evidence, which I'll show you in a second. So we see Herod here is a huge liar. So it's time to hide your kids, like keep them all away because Herod's coming to get your two-year-old. And you want to keep him hid. All right, so Herod's just a big fat liar when he says that he wants to come and worship. Now, verse 9 says, After listening to the king, um, after listening to Herod, they went on their way. And behold, the star that, that they had seen when it had rose. All right, let me try that again. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So here's the deal. We know more than likely that they were on a two-year journey, all right? More than likely on a two-year journey. They come into Jerusalem. They had been following a star the whole time. They come into Jerusalem, and more than likely, what we can, what we can pull out from the Scriptures is that this star was gone. They, they're not sure. They, they had general revelation guiding them to get to the city of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, the star is gone um, because it seems that it says, after listening to the king, the star kind of reappeared to them. So this is amazing, all right? The star brought them there. They were astrologers. God used general revelation to draw them to the king. They get there. They don't know where to go. Then they, they ask, <clears throat> we've come to see the king of the Jews. God uses special revelation, which is his, his scriptures. God uses the, the, the scribes who quote Mac, Micah 5 and say, oh, look at the scriptures. That'll tell you right where it is. Now, this is the pattern of God now. God, in Romans 1, we can see clearly that God has revealed himself throughout all creation, that we know there's a God, and therefore we are all guilty of sin, and we know we're guilty of sin. We just don't know how to be forgiven. And then God, just in the same pattern, draws them to a place through, through general revelation, but then gives them special revelation, the scriptures, to draw them straight down to Bethlehem. And that's the way it is for us. God uses special revelation, the scriptures. So everybody is indicted because of their sin who's been born, because we're all in the line of Adam. We're all sinners. But we have to, and that's why we have to take this gospel to the ends of the earth, the people that don't, never heard about Jesus. We have to take the scriptures, the gospel, the good news of Jesus to them, and they need to see in the scriptures how the salvation happens. They can know that they're guilty, but they don't know how to be saved until we take the gospel to them and give them the gospel that Jesus is the one who died for you. He came and lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live, but couldn't. He died the death that you were supposed to. And if you would put your faith in him, you can receive forgiveness of sin. And the best part, and this is, goes along with my New Year's resolution, be filled with the spirit and now have the power to live a spirit filled, God glorifying life. And that's what I want to major in on this year a lot more. There is there's a place in our worship for conviction of sin, but there is a huge place for rejoicing. There's a huge place for rejoicing that we've been filled with the spirit. And we have now the power of God to go live a God glorifying life. I mean, this is just amazing. So. That's the pattern here. And it says in verse 10, when they saw the star, <laughs> I love the way they use this. I mean, it's just so many descriptions of the exact same thing. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, you can just imagine like, all right, we got it. Like, <clears throat> you don't have to keep using the same idea. But Matthew's wanting us to make sure we see they were super duper, radically awesome, major excited to get to see that star and that they saw this. And we don't understand the star. And I mean, I read some commentaries about the craziness of what it was. I just think it was kind of a special star for them the whole way. Um, God can do that. So they, they were re rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. And so I'm just kind of considering and I'm thinking, why was it that they were rejoicing exceedingly with great joy? There's a lot of things going on. They're finally seeing the king. They finally, you know, they're reunited with their friend. We're, Where's the star? We don't know. They said, go, to, go down to Bethlehem. All right, the scriptures are going to tell us we're going to go down there. All of a sudden, the star reappears for this little six-mile journey, and they see their friend. Okay, we've been journeying two years. You've been guiding us, and all of a sudden, we get to Jerusalem, and you're gone, Mr. Star. Thank goodness you're back. And so we're going to follow you for this last little bit. We're so excited. And the star, it, it seems that the star is kind of sitting over the house. Um, by the way, it says a house, so we know he's not in the manger anymore. Um, Mary and Joseph went ahead and sold some stuff. I don't know what they did. They, they got themselves a house. It says, and going to the house. And that's house. Like, you can, you can, it's oika. In the Greek term, oika is house. There's, I was reading some commentators that were trying to make it village and trying to make it still a manger and trying to make it the inn, trying to do a whole lot of stuff. But there's other words for that. This, this is a house. So we know that it's two years later. Anyway, so they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Why? Why are they doing this? And here's why I think. Two years. Two years is a long time to walk through a desert following a star because you've heard and never seen the fact that there's a king that you're supposed to go worship and bring gifts to. Two years. 
is a long journey to finally reach it. And when you reach that, you can't help but rejoice exceedingly with great joy. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have gone through some circumstances that are just seem like it's going forever. And when you came through it, when you finally came out of that hurt, you see the light at the end of the tunnel. There is no other emotion to feel than rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. There is no other emotion to feel. When God has sovereignly by His grace designed that He's going to bring you out of this two-year, six-month, seven-year, ten-year tribulation, time, journey, where it's tough, and you're reaching what it is that He's finally brought you to, there is no other feeling of emotion that you can feel besides thank you. And here, it's just they're excited. And we see that there's, there's some of that joy being extended and pointed towards the king because they says they worship him. And we have no other place to, to extend and point and place our worship other than the person of Jesus. It's a long way and they finally have found their destination. And when we know we've reached that, there's, there's great joy for us. And so going into the house... They saw the child with Mary, his mother. And I don't know why it doesn't mention Joseph, but it doesn't. They, more than likely, I guess he's there. We, we don't have much on Joseph um, <clears throat> after the birth. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And here it is. They fell down and worshipped. They prostrated, literally, they prostrated themselves upon the ground and worshipped. And I, I find this interesting to think that grown kings are laying on the ground face down to a two-year-old. I've got a two-year-old worshiping him. It just seems strange, interesting at least. But he is the Messiah. Like we don't do that <laughs> to two-year-olds ever. Matthew is wanting people to see this is the Messiah. This is the king they had these these magi had a proper perspective. The journey didn't make them weary. They didn't finally get there and say, you know what, king, you need to pay me a little bit of credit. I took a two year journey to get here. How about they as soon as they saw him, they fell down on their face. They had a proper perspective of who they were in light of who he was. And they worshiped. They fell down. And maybe it's taken you a long time to get here spiritually today. Maybe it's taken you a long time to get to the place where you are spiritually. And God is finally awakening you to his glory. He's awakening you to the, the unbelievable, unmistakable reality that this Jesus is the king of your life. And you are supposed to fall down and worship just like him. You're finally in your heart. You're saying, yes, God, make much of Jesus through my life and heart now. Let this year be the year where I'm not messing around anymore. I don't find myself a month later just going, oh, for God, I'm supposed to be worshiping Jesus. It's time. It's time for you and I to fall down. It's time for us to lay all of our self, like they laid their gifts, lay all of ourselves down at the feet of Jesus. It's time for us to come to him and worship him and, and see that he's our king, that we're supposed to Worship down, face down in front of our king. Now, what I want to do here is just kind of run through fast force the four different people that are kind of face to face with him. These are the four groups of people that are aware of this king. And this, let's just look at how they react. OK, there's four different characters we can see in this. The first one are the chief priests. And we've already talked about that. And as we're looking at these, I just want you to kind of think about this. Which one of these four are you? Which one of these four are you? You are aware of a king. The king of your life. Jesus. Whether you want to have him as your king or not, he is. One day we know every knee will, will bow at the, at the feet of Jesus. Whether they're Christians or not, we were all realized one day in Revelation, it says that, that we were all um, servants of this king. So who are you out of these four? Are you the chief priest? Do you know the information, but you're not necessarily really looking for him? You got the info, but you're not necessarily seeking him out. You just got the info. Maybe you're Herod. <laughs> I'm hoping and praying not. 
Um, Herod was evil. He was seeking the king, but he wanted to do him harm. Like he wanted to destroy the king. He wanted to, to get rid of him. He had, this is the modern day atheist who has no desire for the things of God. He looks for him in order to shoot down other Christians' beliefs in it just to destroy us. Praying that that's not the case here. Maybe we're like the Magi. We're the foreign Gentiles seeking Christ on a journey. We're coming to him and we're finally arriving at this place where we're realizing that he is the king. This is the man that I am supposed to give my life towards. And I'm ready to start just like them laying down my gifts, laying down myself at the altar of God and offering myself. And maybe I mean, this is the last one, maybe the kind of the weirdest one. Um, maybe we're just like Jesus's parents. And this is a good place. Maybe we're already in the house. Maybe we're already in the church. Maybe we're already serving. We're already being used. We're already close. We're already um, knowing what it means to be a servant and worshiper of this great king. And I'm just going to say, that's awesome. And keep it going. Keep, only God's going to sustain that. But that is a beautiful place to be right now. Don't take that for granted. Don't let that fall away. Don't let that be taken away from you. Satan is seeking to destroy you like a roaring lion. He hates that you're right there. You fight for that every day. Which four are you? So here's the deal. It says this. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. These magi offered this king gifts. And we know these things. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the gospel is in the gifts. Like, it's amazing when we see it. The good news of Jesus is in these gifts. Gold. Gold is the medal that's, that's given to a king. Um, Jesus is the king of kings. And so he's wanting to highlight that this, this is a king right here. Frankincense, or really just incense. I'm just going to call it incense. Um, in, in the Old Testament, burning incense um, in the temple was, was the role that was anointed by the, by the priests of Israel. So this is a highlight. This is a, a, a showing that Jesus is the priest, the greatest priest. He is the, the fulfillment of all the priests. He's our great high priest. Now, here's an interesting thing. Um, incense of all the gifts that, that we could have said, I mean, priests did a lot of functions. But incense, when they burned incense, um, they never used the burning of incense whenever they did sin offerings. They had lots of different offerings, but they never used the burning of incense for the sin offerings. And this is to highlight the sinlessness of Jesus, um, which is so key in the gospel that we understand that Jesus was absolutely perfect. His sinlessness is absolutely essential to the gospel. He had to be perfect in order to go and die for us. And we had to be able to have his perfection, his righteousness imputed to us. So the fact that he is righteously 100% perfect is key. And this is being highlighted to us in the incense that he's our priest and he is perfect. And then myrrh. Myrrh was a, was a, uh, a preservative for death and burial. They would use it whenever they would do the embalming and they would wrap around. This is just a prophecy even. This is gospel in it that it's showing us that this is being given to him and he was born to die. Die for our sins. Jesus came to suffer for our sin and his sin offering was symbolized by the Magi's gift of myrrh. Jesus was, a, was the sin offering for us. And so the gospel's in here. And then it says this, and being warned in a dream. Now, I just wish we're going to see all throughout here. Like G Joseph was warned in a dream. They're warned in a dream. Dreams are kind of kind of be the thing here. I think it'd be really cool if we could have that still today. I don't, I've never had it to be warned in a dream. <laughs> don't go over there anymore. Don't do that. Uh, but they're warned in a dream. Um, and it says they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod, not to return to Herod. And so they departed to their own country by another way. So. Not to over-spiritualize, but there are some, some pretty amazing things in this. There's a paradigm being shaped by us, by these actions of these magi that are ap absolutely applicable to us today. They seek the king. When they seek the king, they offer their gifts. They offer themselves. Whenever they, they offer their gifts, they fall down on their faces and worship. And then after that, they go a different way. They don't go back the same way. 
Whenever you come to the king, you're not supposed to go back the same way. Whenever you come to Jesus, you're not supposed to fall back into that same sin. Whenever you come back to Jesus, you're not come to Jesus. You're not supposed to just go live the same way. You're supposed to go a different way. Now, this is this is a paradigm being shaped for us. These are some principles that we can say, yes, we're supposed to go a different way. So today, today, what can you come and offer? What can you come? They offer gold, frankincense and myrrh. Which one can you offer? Maybe you can come offer death. Maybe you can come offer myrrh. You can say, I am going to come now and die to myself. I am offering you my death so that you might now, Jesus, live in me. Maybe you want to offer your frankincense or your, your incense saying, I'm coming to offer you my worship. Um, a fragrant offering that's being presented up to you, which is my spiritual act of worship, Romans 12.1. I'm going to offer you, God, now for the rest of my life, my worship, both, both corporately, as we stand here and sing, which is 25 minutes per week at best, but the other 160-something hours per week, lifestyle. I want to offer you my entire life of worship. Maybe you need to offer your... Maybe you need to offer your um, incense or your myrrh, your death or your worship. And maybe you need to offer your gold. And I'm not saying money. I'm saying something different. Gold is the gift to a king. Maybe you need to come and say, I'm offering myself as your servant. You're the king. I'm the servant. You, God, own me. And the truth is, that's already true. You're his possession. And you're just... Mentally acknowledging the fact that you're his possession. You're the servant. You're the son or daughter. He's the king. He's the dad. He's the one calling the shots. And this is just a, an acknowledgement. I am not going to let 2011 or my life be like it was. And I'm not saying your life so far has been bad. I'm not saying that. But we all have places we know, if we're honest with ourselves, that we want... To be more sanctified, more like Jesus, more holy, more in line with the scriptures of what God calls us to live. A spirit filled, gloriously worshipful life. We see. We see in verse 19 of chapter two that Jesus goes to Nazareth like there's threats on his life. And so he shoots up north up to Nazareth and lives there. And then a prophecy says that this is because of prophecies being fulfilled that he's going to be called a Nazarene. So he spends probably the rest of his childhood in Nazareth to not be killed. We see later on in Matthew where Matthew says Jesus went up to Nazareth and was doing some work. And whenever he was trying to preach to them, um, this is the verse that it ends with. He went to Nazareth. Now, this is, this is where he grew up. And if I went back to Columbia and tried to do some stuff that I grew up with, people I grew up, they'd say, uh, aren't you that guy, you know? And that's basically what they're doing. They're saying, wait a second. This is Mary and Joseph's son. This, that guy, we know him when he was a little boy running around. That guy is supposed to be the king of the Jews? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's little Jesus. And then it ends with this verse. And I mean this literally. I mean this literally. This is probably, this verse is as scary as hell. It's scary that this could be the, the case maybe for some of us. The verse says in Matthew 13, at the very end where the people were so familiar with this guy, it says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Have you read the end of John? Have you read the end of the book of John? Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's a huge contrast. Jesus did so many things that we can't even fill the pages that are possible right now as we write to show everything he did. Matthew 13. He, could, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. We can argue about God's sovereignty and not wanting to do it and man's responsibility and their unbelief. We can argue about all that. But the scripture is pretty straight. Unbelief caused no work. 
So don't let your and my, let's not let our lack of faith or unbelief or lack of faith that God can really move in our life for his glory. Let's not let the lack of faith where yeah, that happens to the other people. That doesn't happen to me. I mean, I've got so many things going on. I, I just don't feel sanctified enough. I, I do all these sins. I, we, can, we, we can talk about all these things until we're at the end of our life and we look back and we never were used. Let's not let the lack of faith or unbelief cause us to be said of us that he did not do many mighty works through us, but that he did do many mighty works through us. Depart another way. Don't go back the same way. Brand new year, brand new deal, all brand new. For the rest of your life, not just 2011, the rest of your life, God is saying, come now and offer me your worship. Offer me your death. Offer me yourself as a servant. This is how we're going to conclude. We're going we're gonna to go into a time of worship. Um, and I just... I just want to say, however God's leading you right now, I want you to be obedient to it. Maybe, maybe you need to, and we don't do this very often, but maybe you need to come down and, and make this little area an altar and say, I'm going to come to the altar and offer my gift. I'm going to offer my gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I'm going to offer my death, my worship, my, my commitment to be your servant and do whatever you want. And then you... You can pray and then you can go back and you can mentally say, I left it at the altar. It's all there. It's all there for him. Maybe you just need to do that in your chair. Maybe there's something that in you needs to come forward. Sometimes I'm like that. Sometimes I'm not. Maybe you just want to stand. You're like Mary and you're so close and you're just so thankful for the fact that you and God are walking together. And you just need to stand and you just need to worship him with with great thankfulness that you have been saved and that you are walking with him and that you know him and that you're being used by him and you're so thankful for it. I don't, I don't know where you are. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're like the scribes or Herod and you just need to put your faith in him. I invite you to come talk to me. I'll be right over here. Come talk to me during the worship while we're singing. Come talk to me after the service. However God's leading you. The key in all this is that whatever... God is leading you to do and however he's leading you to do it do it now be obedient to the spirit's leading let me pray father I thank you for today I thank you for your word I thank you that even for familiar stories as I read I mean this is such a familiar story to me that you (coughs) by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace that you've given allow me to see things in there that though it may be familiar, challenge me. God, they challenge me. They make me want to be different. They make me want to live for Christ and his glory differently. And I just pray, Lord, that all of us are, are seeing that. I pray, Holy Spirit, you're, you're leading me and, and everyone here to be obedient to your leading. And however, God, you're calling us right now to respond, whether it's standing with hands raised, standing just singing out, coming forward and praying, coming to talk to me, whatever, Lord, I pray that, or talking to the person they came with. However you're leading, Father, I pray that they would be obedient right now to the leading of your Spirit. I pray these things in Jesus' name.